The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash earnings right now. NetSuite.com slash earnings. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. The Singapore of today, the one featured in Crazy Rich Asians with its luxury shopping malls, mansions, and an airport complete with a butterfly garden and a movie theater? That's a relatively new phenomenon. Less than 60 years ago, Singapore was newly independent and incredibly poor. Three quarters of the city's population lived in overcrowded slums without electricity or proper sanitation. The environment was extremely bad. Just to prove it to you, you could actually blindfold yourself and you know you're at Singapore River. Why? It could smell the sewer in Singapore River. That's the Singapore we were in those days. That's Liu Taiker, and he's one of the main reasons the city is so different today. People call him the architect of modern Singapore. Lou always had dreams of bettering his circumstances and those of the city he grew up in. At a young age, he decided to study architecture so he could one day help build up Singapore. His studies took him to Australia, then Yale, and then to New York, where he worked for the famed architect, I.M. Pei. Then he got the opportunity he had been preparing for. In 1969, Lou was asked to come back to Singapore to join its recently established Housing Development Board, or the HDB. Its goal was to improve the city's housing conditions. The government of Singapore decided if we want to have a sustainable city compatible with all the other larger countries, we must achieve excellence. And one of the signs of removing backwardness is to remove the squatters and house everybody in housing. But it was about more than just putting a decent roof over people's heads. Singapore is a tiny island state with no agricultural industry. Singapore's key resource is its people. So the government wanted to make Singapore somewhere people wanted to live and stay, a place they were invested in. When you own your own properties, then you feel that you have taken root in the society. And we also want to defend, on the one hand, defend for the survival of the country. On the other hand, is to help build the economy of the country. And it went even further than that. The government also felt that if it met people's basic needs, housing, education, health care, then they'd be able to thrive and in turn, help Singapore's economy grow. 
Within a few years, more than 400,000 people were living in HGB rentals. Singapore must be one of the few places in the world where a statutory board satisfactorily completed everything it set out to do in its first five-year plan. Then in 1964, the government went a step further and began to allow, to encourage even, lower middle-income citizens to buy their apartments at prices well below market rates. After five years, they could sell them on the open market. That program allowed many Singaporeans to make a lot of money. If you'd bought an HDB apartment in 1990 and sold it 25 years later, you'd have made your money back more than 10 times over. Today, Singaporeans expect to own their homes. Almost 90% of the population does and eventually to sell them at a profit. With one sweeping policy, Singapore had managed to ensure that the vast majority of its population had a clean, modern place to live. And it had boosted its economy. Singapore is now one of the richest countries per capita in the world. Then the pandemic ushered in Singapore's worst ever recession, and median household income fell for the first time in a decade. And while Singapore did a pretty good job containing the virus, the pandemic brought havoc to the city's carefully controlled real estate market. The economy shrank, but home prices continued to rise. The average private property now costs about 15 times median household earnings. That's higher than New York, London, or San Francisco. I do worry that nowadays, the public housing prices is really a business venture than actually solving the housing need. I, I feel that the implication may not be very good for the economic development of Singapore. Jobless claims coming in, I mean, really jumping from the week before. Pretty brutal, 3.2 million. A record 6.6 million Americans filed for unemployment last week. Indian working women were the worst impacted by the pandemic. Prices of public housing resale flats have hit an all-time high in the first quarter of this year. Well, now to the billionaire boom. According to Bloomberg, super yacht charters are up over 340%. And a billionaire was created every 26 hours during this pandemic. It is time for a wealth tax in America. Welcome back to The Paycheck. I'm Rebecca Greenfield. By many accounts, Singapore is a pandemic and an inequality success story. The country kept its COVID death rates relatively low, and it's a rich country where many people live relatively comfortably. But as we've learned this season, no place can fully insulate itself from the effects of a pandemic. And Singapore felt huge economic shocks that have hit its core. Affordable housing, super hard. Like in many big cities around the world, demand for housing spiked during the pandemic. People were reevaluating their life choices and the homes they were suddenly spending way more time in. And they were enjoying record low interest rates. As a result, Singapore is becoming more and more stratified. And that's left its citizens starting to question whether the city's wildly successful housing experiment is still working for them. In the 2020 election, the ruling People's Action Party suffered its worst parliamentary results in more than 60 years of unbroken rule. Observers blame that outcome on younger voters and their growing fears about inequality. They worry they can't match the economic advancement their parents enjoyed. If the problem remains unresolved, Singapore is at risk of losing its only resource, its people. 
My colleague Faris Mokhtar grew up in Singapore and has worked as a reporter there for the past 10 years. Here he is with the story. For most people in Singapore, home is an HDB apartment, like the one I'm standing outside right now. I grew up in one of these government-built units, and my parents still live in one today. They're usually found in high-rise blocks, on clean, tree-lined streets, and the largest are big enough for a family of five like mine. The blocks look pretty unremarkable to anyone familiar with public housing, but they have a couple of uniquely Singaporean features. Here, on the ground floor, there's an open, sheltered space called the Void Deck. It's a shady communal gathering place out of the equatorial sunshine, and you'll sometimes even see weddings and funerals held here. Inside newer flats, you'll often find a built-in bomb shelter. That's a worst-case preparation measure just in case the city's ever under attack. But mostly, they just get used as extra storage space. I have friends who use theirs as walk-in wardrobes or even makeshift wine cellars. And like almost everything in Singapore, HDB flats have been meticulously planned. I was very envious of the old cities in the West, in Europe particularly, and also Manhattan. That's Liu Taika again, the architect of modern Singapore. So I wanted Singapore to be as good as those. And second, I was trained as a planner, so I want to make sure that Singapore functions well. Liu and the HDB agency took into account everything, from the facilities available in each neighbourhood to even the amount of light that was needed. When there's no, no good lighting, people are in a bad mood and therefore they tend to fight more. So all these things have been built into the hardware from the get-go, the founding leaders of Singapore determined that housing and home ownership would be one of the city-state's core pillars. And for decades, it has been. But as prices keep going up, not everyone is convinced the government's plan is still working for everyone. Obviously, people need a place to live, right? They desire good places, high-quality places to live. But they should focus on it as a good not an asset. That's Christopher Gee. He's a senior researcher at a Singapore think tank called the Institute of Policy Studies. He's been looking at the city's approach to housing for the last decade. If you encourage that idea that it is an asset and people can speculate to grow wealthy, then it, it kind of almost ends up in a zero-sum game. But if people think about this as a good, right, then we, we do get good out of it. It's for your consumption. You should buy it, utilize it for what it is worth to you. Not to think that, okay, you can flog it on to somebody else at a higher price. What he's saying is that increasing property prices are a zero-sum game because would-be buyers lose out, even as existing homeowners see their wealth grow. In other words, the system can lead to inequality. And Singapore's government worries about inequality, which can have a corrosive effect on social cohesion and can even drive social unrest. Inequality um, is an issue that affects people's trust in each other. If there is a, a big difference in someone's lived experience, someone's opportunities, it's harder for you to understand and put yourself into the position of the other. 
It also strikes into the social compact. It strikes against the Singapore pledge, right? We pledge ourselves to develop a, a just and equal society. And I think if we don't hold that, then there's something problematic. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just the show for you. He's become even more larger than life. Buying Twitter doesn't get us closer to Mars. They are like really close to the edge of like everything falling apart. Like, oh, Elon, I volunteer, put a chip in my brain. Each week on this podcast, we'll break down, analyze, and debate the most important stories on Musk and his empire. It's all one big universe. You just work for Elon Inc. From Bloomberg Businessweek, this is Elon Inc. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Singapore's richest residents wouldn't blink at forking out millions for a new pad. But soaring property prices even for government-built apartments, have become a real concern for many ordinary people. Even a relatively simple four-bedroom public unit can go for more than 400000 Singapore dollars, which is about 290000 US dollars. An apartment in a prime location can fetch more than three times that amount. And in Singapore's carefully planned housing market, things are even more complicated for younger would-be buyers. Under 35s don't qualify for subsidised HDB apartments, known as built-to-order units or BTOs, unless they are married. Abhishek Ravikrishnan is one of those ordinary Singaporeans who's worried by rising prices. I think it's a huge problem, the affordability. It's public housing after all, but it doesn't match up to the, the price. What you're paying for, it's not a bang for your buck. When public housing is meant to be more accessible to the public, so affordability is definitely a huge issue for me personally. Abhishek is 33 years old, a young professional who doesn't yet have a family to worry about. He's a long way from the bottom of Singapore's socio-economic ladder. Even so, his hopes of buying a property as an investment are dimming. We've all grown up with that mindset, but to me, I think it's changed over time after seeing what's happened, especially with the increased prices of public housing, which are essentially meant for the public, but the prices have gone up because you're allowed to flip it around. Obviously, property can be an asset, but for uh, someone who's middle income or lower middle income, I don't think it's a viable means of uh, profiting. 
Abhishek's well aware of the benefits that the country has already seen as a result of these policies. But he's also resigned to the fact that he's unlikely to experience the same social uplift as previous generations have enjoyed. At that point, the 70s, 80s, decisions were made with that generation in mind and how to move them forward. And obviously it's helped. You see, Singapore's development and growth over the last 40 years has been phenomenal. So I don't think there's resentment to it. But right now, the middle income is getting squashed because it's very difficult to break out of that cycle. The pandemic showed Abhishek just how deep the divide between rich and poor can be. For him, the real question is not just how Singapore manages its housing supply, it's whether everyday people still have the opportunity to thrive. I question the level of meritocracy. I've always questioned it because obviously we're living in the real world where connections, knowing people, having strong networks, having uh, come from different backgrounds or having your background might determine where you're going to end up. So I don't personally believe that Singapore is a society that's based completely on meritocracy. For me personally, housing is... I want to build a home for myself and a place where I can come back to and I feel a sense of belonging to not only the, the actual property itself, but to the surroundings as well. And, and that's a bit idealistic on my part, but it has to be a place that means something to me. Like Abhishek, Jolene Teo is in her early 30s with a career and no family yet. COVID was one of the forces that prompted her to think about buying her own home. With the pandemic, it was a catalyst for a lot of people like myself to move out of their parental homes. And from there, I actually realised that I really enjoy living on my own. I really wanted to have a place that I could do it myself and really call a home of my own rather than just renting. Even though she got some help from her parents to make the purchase, surging prices were still a consideration. If I wasn't fortunate enough to have parents who were able to help me, I would have to wait until I was 35 to buy an HDB. And that's just, just as really unfortunate, right? She's still confident that she will make a profit on her purchase eventually. Though a smaller one than previous generations could have expected. So my parents, they were able to 9x their original investment in the house. My sister, about... 10, 11 years ago, she was able to double it. And I'm seeing that decrease over time for sure. Personally, I would see it as a home and a long-term asset. I have a couple of friends who have bought BTOs and they're hoping to flip it up after five to six years. I'm not looking to do that sort of flipping, not at least for the next eight to 10 years. I think it's all about the horizon that you have in mind. I do think that it will still be profitable and houses will only continue to go up in price. Jolene's views aren't unusual. As long as housing behaves like an investment asset, it's all but inevitable that many people will continue to treat it like one. But whether you see housing as an investment, like Jolene, or as more of a consumer good, like Abhishek, Affordability is an issue that's hard to ignore. It's an issue I'm very familiar with myself. I'm 33 years old, and in 2020, I did start thinking about purchasing my first property. To my surprise, prices skyrocketed despite the pandemic and the recession. I abandoned my plans, and I wonder now whether I missed the boat. When my parents sold our five-bed flat in 2001, we moved into a smaller unit and they made a big enough profit to buy the latest Nissan. 
and to top up their savings account too. I know that kind of return is way out of reach for me now. I get asked every now and then, do I plan to buy an apartment? I'm too young to get an HDB as an unmarried person, and I'm not going to get married just so I can buy one. Finding a girlfriend is a long enough process. Rising housing prices also scare me. Let's say, if my future wife wants to buy a home, maybe we'll do it. If I'm on my own, I might stick with renting and put my capital into stocks, cryptocurrency or other investments. When I reached out to the National Development Ministry to comment for this story, a spokesperson said that HDB flats are primarily intended as a home for their owners to live in, as well as being a good store of value for the owner's retirement. That's in line with the ruling party's message about the property market, since it faced unhappy voters during the first year of the pandemic. While the ruling People's Action Party has won every election since independence, and opposition politicians say the city's election rules make it very hard for anyone else to win, the government is still very sensitive to signs that its popularity is slipping. About six months ago, it rolled out tighter loan limits and additional property taxes on second homes, the latest of several rounds of measures designed to cool house prices. It also announced it will increase the supply of housing. But it may well take more than these measures to change Singaporeans' attitudes to real estate. Paul Tambaya, who is chairman of the opposition Singapore Democratic Party, says it's high time property was handled more like a consumer good again. Housing does not actually enable anybody to move up the social ladder unless you have a rich father or mother. The vast majority of Singaporeans, more than 80% of them, own only a single property, the one in which they live. So sure, if the value of this property rises, they could be tremendously wealthy if they sell the property. But then where are they going to live? The original goals of public housing in Singapore were, were very good and very noble. The idea is that you provide a safe uh, roof over people's head, you provide them with electricity, with clean water, and so they can use their savings for other things, for other far more productive investments. So I think that's where housing needs to go back to, to provide for a roof over the heads of the bulk of the population. Paul is calling for an overhaul of the city's housing model. In the early days, you could only sell your HDB flat back to the HDB and then the government would put it into the, the general pool of uh, property that's available and then somebody could buy it after that. This would be too drastic a step to put in in one fell swoop. So we've suggested that a certain portion of the housing stock be non-open market. So there would be open market flats which could be sold on the open market and the non-open market flats which would have to go back to the HDB and it's, it's not going to be easy and people are going to have to come to terms with the idea of flipping property is not the solution. But I think that's more realistic. Paul's ideas aren't the only ones in the mix right now. While Singapore grapples with keeping housing affordable, some observers even suggest Singapore should move away from its home ownership model and instead encourage renting, which is more common in places like Germany or Japan. The pandemic forced people around the world to think hard about how and where they were living. In Singapore, where home ownership has become a cornerstone of national identity and a key indicator of well-being, it brought simmering concerns about wealth disparity to the fore. 
for young people in particular. Calls for housing to be treated as a good and not an investment asset may be a signal that Singapore's original housing experiment is getting closer to having run its course. It's the success story that my parents' generation have been able to use to upgrade themselves. So it's hard and, and for the government to now do a reverse U-turn and, and say that you know, we're going to shift to a different model uh, would be very difficult and perhaps politically unpopular. People are going to um, be upset, right? but I think they can get over it. They can't be their parents. I don't think they want to be their parents. Singapore shows that a country can drastically change its economic fortunes. It can also just as easily backslide. It takes the right mix of policies, interventions, and resources, but poverty and inequality are not foregone conclusions. Next week on our final episode of this season of The Paycheck, we head to a utopia of economic equality to see if there are lessons to be learned for the rest of the world. The objective of the cooperative is not to produce rich people, it's to produce rich societies. At the end of the day, even if you are not rich, if you belong to a rich society, you will be happy. Thanks for listening to The Paycheck. This episode originally said that Singapore has no manufacturing sector. We've corrected the error as the category now accounts for 20% of its GDP. If you like our show, please head on over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts to rate, review, and subscribe. This episode was hosted by me, Rebecca Greenfield, and reported by Faris Mokhtar. It was edited by Alyssa McDonald and Janet Paskin, with help from Francesca Levy, Rakshita Saluja, and me. We also had editing help from Danielle Balby, Shelley Banjo, Kristen V. Brown, Jilda DeCarly, Nicole Flato, and Kai Schultz. This episode was produced by Jilda DeCarly and sound engineered by Matt Keim. Our original music is by Leo Sidron. Special thanks to Magnus Henriksen, McKinnon DeKuyper, Margaret Sutherland, and Stacey Wong. Francesca Levy is Bloomberg's head of podcasts. See you next week. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.